0: Welcome to Creative Principles, I'm your host, Brox Winson. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and more, where we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and methods of a creative life. This episode is brought to you by freelancerclass.com. At Freelancer Class, you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money as a writer, marketer, graphic designer, virtual assistant, or an accountant from the comfort of your own home. Make a little extra money or replace your income at freelancerclass.com. Writer-director Jamie Greenberg discusses his new film, Future 38, along with his television work as a writer on the series, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? In this interview, he talks about writing a film around a low budget, knowing how to set rules for yourself in a genre, knowing whether or not you're willing to spend years on a project and the difference between quiz show and cool runnings for historical fiction pieces.
1: Let's see. I've always kind of been oriented toward telling stories and comedy. I went to Cornell as an English major, but uh, in my sophomore year, I got into the comedy group there, a sketch and improv comedy group called whistling shrimp. And I basically that, became my major, and that's basically what I learned at Cornell. Um, we were performing all the time and writing sketches, and it, it was just, it was like it was like comedy heaven, honestly. Particularly because at that time, you know, this was this was in the late '80s, and there wasn't really an internet yet, and there wasn't there were less entertainment options for people. So people always came to our shows. It was just very very encouraging. And then I, I graduated and got into television first as a researcher, uh, a PA, and then a researcher for game shows, and then as a game show writer, and then children's television. uh, I was a writer on all five seasons of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego on PBS. And then we spun that off into its sequel show, Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego, which was a history show instead of a geography educational show. And I actually co-created that show, and I was an actor on it. And I had a long run. I was a television writer for more than 10 years. And uh, I, uh, I, you know, television, of course, is very commercial and there's many, many limitations. And I started to chase at that and I became interested in making short films, which I really didn't know how to do because I had never studied. I had taken one class at Cornell. I had never really studied it. And so I just started doing it and I made a number of short films. and, and then, you know, worked my way up and wrote my first feature, which I ended up directing. Uh, we ended up making it. It's called Stags. And it kind of came and went, although I'm proud of it. And then after some time passed, I, I came around to writing my second feature, uh, started out writing a completely different project, a, um, a, a story very much based on, on a historical event in the Cold War. And I kind of went a little crazy researching it. And I spent like a year, went to the Library of Congress, and I bought all these books and immersed myself to the point that I was very efficiently paralyzed and couldn't couldn't see the forest for the trees at all. And I had all these yellow pads, as every writer does, I guess. I had all these legal pads filled with psycho scribblings and stuff. And I remember very distinctly, in fact, I noted down the day, uh, there was a time when I just said, there's got to be an easier way. This is wrecking my head. And I put that yellow pad away it pulled out a fresh yellow pad. And I said, what would be fun and light to write and not, not just torture? And I said, time travel, of course, because everybody, every, every happy nerd likes time travel. And then that's kind of where it came from. And I, I said, wouldn't it be fun to make a movie about traveling to the future? But my plan, even then, was to find a way to make the movie. And I knew, of course, that my funds would be very, very limited. And so I said, if you're going to make a movie about the future, how do you do that on such a very, very small budget because you because I won't be able to afford the the art direction, basically the effects and the art direction and building the fancy future cars and the future buildings and all that, the props. And I kind of said to myself, well, we we really live in the future already. It already, every day feels like we live in the Jetsons. Everything is so high tech and digital now. Wouldn't it be fun to make a movie that uh, uh, kind of shines a light on that, on, on, on what, a in, in a sort of a crackpot way, like what, what, what's a fun way of looking at our own time and pointing out how futuristic it is Well, why not make a movie about our time, but from the perspective of 1930s Hollywood filmmakers? And so that's where the idea, you know, that was the the genesis of it. So, okay, so I'll make a movie that, you know, purportedly is a movie from 1938 in which those golden age Hollywood filmmakers try to imagine what our time might Mm -hmm. be like and then have some fun with, you know, they, they got some stuff humorously just right and, of course, some stuff really wrong and just play around with that dynamic. That's kind of where it came from.
0: So with that idea, a lot of the comedy comes from that. Did you kind of did you make a list of technologies you wanted to talk about, or did you start writing the story first and kind of see what came into the story?
1: What did I do? Uh, let's see. I came up with the bones of the story first. And then along the way, in a kind of very nonlinear way, I just kept thinking of so the answer to your question I guess is both. I, I sort of did them simultaneously. Oh, you know, when and I also set some rules for myself because when you do go back, when you watch those old movies, particularly from the thirties, the movies set in the future, you'll see things like giant television screens, but it didn't necessarily occur to them that television would would be the successor to radio. You know, it didn't necessarily occur to them that television would be this uh a medium of entertainment. It's strictly a medium of communication. So I said let's do that. So there will be TVs and iPhones in this cartoon alternate future. But it's they they only ever imagined, you know, a widescreen wall television as basically a telephone. And then another rule that, that I set for myself was that um, it never would have occurred to them to use to put to put words on a screen, you know, to have to type into a computer or anything like that. It would have been strictly verbal. And then ticker tape is just so period. It's just so 1930s. So that's where the that's why the computer spits out ticker tape, that kind of thing. I just set fun little rules, and it, you know, the viewer whether the viewer is conscious of them or not. I think it still sets like. I think that's the fun of seeing kind of a whimsical movie. The, the viewer says to himself, "Oh, what are this? What are the rules of this world that I'm getting into?" And then you spend the movie sort of, uh, sort of unpacking them.
0: It's a really interesting take. When you do go back and watch old movies or read old books, there's always like a you know a casual sexism or casual racism that's just in the language. What were some of the like homages or things you looked at when you were writing this film?
1: Well, I tried to find. Basically, I, I, I watched many, many, many uh, screwball comedies, period screwball comedies, and I tried to watch as many old time travel films as I could. There are not as many of those as there are of screwball comedies, but certainly Things to Come uh, was, was kind of influential, not on the tone or the humor, but just on, like I say, this idea of big televisions being strictly used as a, as a communication device. Uh, In terms of the comedy and the tone and the dynamic between the two leads, I would say that probably the most influential was Bringing Up Baby, because I love the way Catherine Hepburn just owns Cary Grant throughout the movie. She's always a step ahead of him, and I find that like a pretty delicious dynamic, and there's an element in Future 38, because Banky really does seem to be kind of the sharper, smarter one of the two of them. Which I found really fun because evidently, <laughs> evidently, Essex has been chosen for this mission because he's the most competent guy in the entire country, and so I, I enjoy that he got to the future, and then he sort of bungles his way through, and he has um, he has gimlet-eyed uh, Banky there to help him through, and then of course the language. You know, I I watched about seventy of these old films, and I absorbed a lot of the language. And then I just had fun with it, and I used a lot of old expressions, but I also just made some up. Um, uh, often I would simply, uh, often I, w- I would simply try to find a fun synonym. So like Banky has a line, and she says, um, she says, "Oh, Banky doesn't sprawl for comedians anymore." And uh, the way I originally wrote it, it was very simple. She said, "Banky doesn't fall for comedians anymore." And I just looked at it and I said, "What's a juicier, what's a punchier word than fall? Sprawl is fun." Let's make it sprawl. And I just tried to do that throughout so that you never quite know what is legit 1930s slang and what is something that I made up. That's, that's kind of what I tried to go for.
0: Have you always kind of written like that? I mean, especially with improv, I remember seeing Jerry Seinfeld talk about which words are funnier than other words. you always think about that when you're writing something like this?
1: Well, the granddaddy of them all is that uh, supposedly Mel Brooks says funny words have a K. Have you heard that?
0: Yes, I think so.
1: Yeah, he goes, it's got a K, a K. It's funny. It's got a K. And I, <laughs> I would be a little nervous about a hard and fast rule like that. But I, you know, part of it for me, like I said, this is my second feature. And all told, from when I sat down to write that first word until the completion of the film, it was about four years, give or take. My first feature ended up being something like five years and you learn it's, it's a bitter lesson. You learn that you're going to be spending so long with this goddamn project that I, I used to joke that it's like a, it's like marrying someone like that person. You better find that person really fun to hang out with because you're going to be with them a lot. And I think that's part of why the movie ended up so vivid and colorful and even the language is very colorful because I just – I tried to make it fun for myself and I figure if it's fun for myself, uh, 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 hopefully that will come across for the viewer. It's also incidentally – it's part of the reason that the movie is so short. Um, It's a very short feature. It's 76 minutes. And on my first feature, I made a mistake that I I think in retrospect is – It's a classic first-time feature director's or feature writer's mistake, which is I tried to pack too much into that movie. And so I ended up with a first-scene assembly that was like two hours and 20 minutes long. And so then we had to cut huge chunks of the movie, which was heartbreaking for me, although it was good that we did it. And that experience was so traumatic that I think I consciously or maybe unconsciously wrote a really really lean script this time around so as to avoid that pain i guess it's like they say about they say about the army you're always fighting the last war (laughs) i guess that's how it is
0: you mentioned with this you were writing with the purpose to film it yourself but when you have an idea like this or what advice do you have for comedy writers and they're trying to decide if their idea is a sketch versus a full-length feature
1: oh well sure uh and uh, yeah and i completely come from short form. Like I said, I come from sketch comedy, but also from game show writing and educational children's writing where everything is very, very short and punchy. Uh, I would say that the old cliches really are true that, um, the audience wants to see a little bit of heart in the project and they want to see arc in the, you know, I used to always say arcs are so phony and so Hollywood, you know, character arc. I mean, so phony, it's so Hollywood, but you really do need it. Or in a, in a feature, viewers will feel like the movie doesn't go anywhere. And so I would say, you know, everybody loves a delicious hook. Like the, the heart to a sketch, the, the core of, of sketch comedy, I think, is that a sketch has a hook and the viewer watches it and they say, what's the hook? Oh, now I get the hook. OK, now conjugate that verb, you know, deploy your hook through several it's several iterations, several you know, let it let it work itself out, and then the sketch is over. And it's grand if a feature has that, too, but you do need more. The relationships between the characters, some measure of arc or progress, at least in the lead characters. So those are the things that I would look for, I guess. And then again, as I said, if a person is really considering writing a feature script or even writing it and then directing it and getting it made, you got to ask yourself if you're going to be happy spending months or years with this project
0: um you you mentioned kind of getting lost in the research with a different project do you have like a set of rules now that you follow or do you stick to the plot or what kind of helps you now narrow narrow that down so it doesn't happen again
1: oh god I, i would like to say that i learned from my mistakes but i'm sure i'll walk into the same mistake again next time the only thing that helped me was that this feature even though In a sense, it's steeped in history because it has the it playfully takes on the attributes of a 1930s film, but the feature this feature, of course, is all silly and made up, and it's in the future and you know the future, but it's kind of the present. But I was free to make up whatever I wanted. The the thing that really got me bogged down in this previous project was that it was about an actual historical event, and I found my I remember I was sort of my my conundrum was I said, well, if you look at movies based on Real life events. On the one hand, you have like, um, uh, let's say, a quiz show about, about the 1950s game show scandals, where, or, or, or an even better one, um, "Good Night and Good Luck," about uh, about uh, Edward R. Murrow uh, and, and, the, and the McCarthy situation. And it, I don't know for sure, but it feels like it's extremely historical. You feel like it's all very grounded, very researched. Very accurate. Then at the other end of the spectrum, this was my comparison that I always used to put forward to myself. The other end of the spectrum, you have cool runnings. Do you remember that movie about the Jamaican bobsled? And as far as I know, the only tether to reality there was that there really was the Jamaican bobsled team in the Olympics. And everybody found that really interesting and surprising. And then that was that. Like, I don't think the real Jamaican bobsled team won any kind of medal or anything. And so they, you know, they just said, well, here's a real-life event, and now we're going to completely freelance and make the rest of it up. And God bless them for that. And I looked at those two movies as, like, the two different poles, and I couldn't decide where on that continuum I wanted to land. Um, So that really was what messed me up. But, you know, it's funny. It gets back to your previous question about whether your idea – has enough in it for a feature. I think the 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 core of my issue was that I was immersing myself in the research, and I didn't really come up with a compelling main character and uh, the, you know, what 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 uh, challenge, what task does this character have to overcome, or what plight do they find themselves in. I did. I was so blinded by all the research that I didn't. That stuff didn't come naturally to me on that particular project. Um. Whereas here, it almost kind of wrote itself. You know, you say, okay, well, the character has 12 hours in this future world, and it's a screwball comedy, so there needs to be a beautiful woman, and they need to have sparks between them and go, you know. Uh, And he has a mission, so that's one arc. And then also, how is he going to address the fact that he only has 12 hours in this world with this perfect, beautiful woman that he's met? How's that going to be addressed? So some of the you know some of the challenges were a little bit built in.
0: It sounds like in a way almost the limitations may have helped you kind of get through it faster I guess or write it down faster.
1: Well look as the saying goes creativity thrives on limitations you know. And in this particular case the gigantic limitation which of course was that I knew that I would be doing it on a tiny tiny budget in a horribly horribly limited uh a shoot window, a very limited shoot schedule, and so on. You know, uh, if, if people enjoy the fact that the movie looks kind of like a 1930s B movie, and if they enjoy the fact that um, it's this future, but really, like, all the props and the, the clothing is all basically pretty modern, and if they enjoy the fact that the special effects and the high-tech feature technology are not impressive at all, well then they're enjoying a limitation because those all came from the fact that I simply knew that I wouldn't have enough money to do a proper mainstream future movie. You know, uh, I would also say, you know, really, I think if people enjoy the movie, it's because the two leads did such a magnificent job. Um, uh, Betty Gilpin and Nick Westrate, And this movie, we shot it in 15 days in the New York summer in this, studio that it wasn't really a studio it really was a converted um uh, i think it was a taxi garage years ago and then they sort of converted it into like a raw empty space that can be used as a studio and there was no air conditioning and there was no nothing and it was a very very rough shoot and you, you know the, the schedules were insane and Betty and Nick were able, you know, through all that, were able to focus and bring this intelligence and humor and magic and a little bit of pesos to their characters. And, uh, you know, that's that's really what the movie rides along on. Um, so I was very fortunate to have them as the two leads.
0: How did they kind of get involved? And also, how did the first scene come about with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson as well?
1: Sure. Um None of them. None of them actually came into the movie through the traditional casting process. Uh, with Betty, we had gone to her agency and you know said, "Here's the project. Who, what, what, you know, what prominent, talented actresses do you have who you think who you think might fit?" And um, Betty really liked the script. At that time, she was just coming off of being a regular on Nurse Jackie, the Edie Falco nursing show on Showtime. And uh, I I, I don't want to put words in her mouth. I believe that she felt that she wanted to show the world that she could carry a feature. I think that was probably part of it. I do know that she responded to the fact that it's a humane, funny, empowered female character, which most actresses will tell you they don't see very much in the scripts that come to them. Uh, And so she didn't audition because people... Actors and actresses who have a certain stature, often their agency will tell you they won't audition. You know, here are some clips, get to know their work. But they they the agency feels that they should not have to actually audition.
0: Was this before, before Glow came out or after Glow came out?
1: No, it was before. Yeah. So the only clips that I believe the only clips that I saw were her clips from Nurse Jackie. But she's awesome on Nurse Jackie. She's hilarious and smart. Um... And then we and then we had a similar situation with our actor who was going to play Essex. He also was on a TV show. He also wouldn't audition. I, in, as I recall, I, I think in both cases I had like a cup of coffee. I had a cup of coffee with Betty, and then I had a cup of coffee with this other actor to get to know them so that we could feel each other out before actually making the decision. Um, and then we we were all set to start shooting the film on a Monday and I had three days of rehearsal time with the two leads and also with the more significant of the supporting parts, like, like five or six of them, I think. And so I said, I said, okay, I have three days to play with for my first day and a half. I'm going to work only with the two leads. And then for the other day and a half, I'll keep the two leads, but I'll bring in all these fun other character parts and everybody can interact and, just get used to this weird dialogue, you know, roll it around in their mouth and so on. And it all seemed to go fine. And then, you know, Friday night, I was like, OK, good night, everybody get get some sleep. I'll see you Monday. We'll make our little movie. And then that night I got a panicky call from our casting director saying that that actor who was slated to play Essex was pulling out of the film. And I said, why? I got along well with him. He we He didn't have any beef with me. And she said, "No, he thinks that all the other actors there were better than him. well, wow. and he thinks he's not going to look good. Isn't that incredible? And so <laughs> So there I am, and it's Friday night, and I'm supposed to start shooting on Monday, and I don't have an Essex. and uh, you know what? We thought maybe the movie wasn't going to happen and, or it was all going to fall apart. And I spoke with Betty, and Betty said, "I know an actor who You know, I don't know if if he'll do it or if he's available, but maybe he could step in. And that was Nick Westrate. And uh, I believe, I think it's Saturday, I met him for a cup of coffee. (laughs) And Sunday, he agreed to take the job. And I said to him, you know, we're slated to start shooting tomorrow, Monday, but you were just getting the script. You're you're just brand new to this project. Uh, How long do you need us to postpone? And he said, if you give me one extra day, to learn the script. If you start Tuesday morning instead of Monday, I'm the guy. And that's what we did. And he, and he's just so great at it. And now, you know, in retrospect, I'm so glad that this all happened because I couldn't possibly imagine a better Essex than him, but, uh, but it was uh, terrible at the time. So that's how I got those two. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, We had a connection through Neil because uh, Robert Miller, the wonderful, wonderful musician who composed and recorded the score of the film, has worked with Neil deGrasse Tyson through work at the uh, the planetarium. Here in New York, we have the Museum of Natural History, and, and that has the space planetarium that's connected to it, where they have these big space shows and stuff. And Neil deGrasse Tyson runs the planetarium, and they have these, you know, every year or something, they change the they changed the big planetarium show and Neil deGrasse Tyson um, uh, records the voiceover. He probably writes it for all I know, but I know that he, he does the voiceover of the planetarium show and the guy doing the music for Robert Miller, doing the music for the film also does the music for the planetarium shows. So he happened to have this connection with Neil deGrasse Tyson and he said, I don't know, maybe, you know, I could try to get the script to him. Maybe he would respond because it's, about science, although in the most goofy, playful way ever. And after a great deal of communication attempts and scheduling issues, because he's a very busy, very important man, we finally made it happen. And you know, the, the funny thing here, of course, is that we shot the film having no idea who would end up doing the introduction. And for that matter, we also didn't know who would play Mabel, the operator because the operator only ever appears composited into a television on the wall or a, uh, a mobile phone, an iPhone in someone's hand. And so that means that on the set, of course, they don't need to be there because they're going to be put in later in editing. Um, so we shot the whole film not knowing that that was going to end up being Sean Young. And there again, through a fun connection, basically, we lucked out and somebody in the production had to, personal connection with Sean Young from having worked with her before. And so months and months and months after we filmed the main film, uh, uh, we we spent an afternoon with Sean Young and filmed her against a green screen background. And then months after that, we, uh, we got that theater with that we filmed uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in and filmed him. He's a wonderful man, by the way. He's really, really cool and fun and easygoing.
0: I definitely it really helped. I mean, just having that opening really set up the film. You know, it's 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 kind of a. I mean, seeing the trailer reminded me of like mystery science theater a little bit, but you're you're in the in on the action versus watching. You know, the story. Mm-hmm. Um but I really enjoyed the film. Is there anything else you would like to add that we haven't already discussed?
1: Uh well, uh, the movie is uh, pre-orders are open already Uh, as of yesterday the pre-orders went up on itunes and the movie will kind of officially hit the world on january 2nd it's going to be on itunes then it's also going to be coming up on netflix and uh, uh amazon i believe and so on so needless to say i would encourage people to watch the film it's a little little low budget indie film and films like this need all the love that they can get you know nowadays Hollywood is really all about the, the big budget films and the sequels and stuff and the franchises, and so I always encourage people to support little scrappy indies like this, whether it's mine or otherwise. So I'd certainly say that, and uh, I hope that this movie sparks a little enthusiasm on the uh, for the beautiful old screwball comedies of the '30s and '40s. They're they're. They're still magic to this day to go back and watch them, and uh, you know this movie's kind of a little bit of a Valentine to those films. So I hope people take it in that spirit.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get your free download of the ebook, "How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block," which includes advice from writers such as Aaron Sorkin, William Monahan, and Carrie Fukunaga. The newsletter will also keep you up to date on future episodes, new articles, and more. Sign up at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com.